Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show for Monday, May the 8th. As I promised, I will be coming to you tape delayed. So we are going to get this done on Sunday, the day before, because I'm going to be doing the TimCast in real life podcast this evening. So after you watch this, you can tune in this evening and catch me on TimCast. Today is going to continue our long-form interview series, kind of back on track. And I have a guest named Peter Johnson, who I met at the SHOT Show in Las Vegas, was instantly just a cool guy to meet. And then, of course... Uh, like so many things, we had all these things in common that are going to be interesting to you all as well. He owns and operates Archway Defense, which is a training company, and he got his background doing five years as a federal air marshal. You can see where we've kind of made a little segue there. He used to be an international team leader conducting counterterrorism missions and surveillance around the globe. And prior to that, just like me, he was in the Air Force, did six years working overseas in a designated marksmanship role. He did ordnance clearing, conducting reconnaissance and gathering intel on local nomads. We're going to dig into all all the backgrounds and what he did. But I think what's also interesting is he's got a background in criminal justice with an emphasis on counterterrorism. And that led to a capstone project that he wrote about the radicalization of Somali youth in Minneapolis. So we're touching a bunch of things that we've touched on before on the Kyle Serafin show, including the George Floyd stuff, uh, the fact that there was this no-go zone and sort of the lawlessness that was happening in Minneapolis, the uh, weaponization of the fams. And we're going to talk about things that I think are going to be relevant to you, like active shooters, because that's what his business is, safety and security for those of you that are walking around in a increasingly more dangerous world. First, I want to thank our sponsor, and we have a very new and very special sponsor, CatholicVote.org has joined us in a, uh, a way to sustain the Kyle Serafin Show, and I'm incredibly grateful to be partnering up with them. They're a really cool advocacy group that's been suing my former employer, so you can tell that's already uh, a great high point for me. Um, I'm giving them some information. They're supporting us. They're going to be working with us to help make the show better and uh, bring you a quality product, uh, including some better video equipment, sounds like. So if you want to visit catholicvote.org, you can check them out. All the people I've met there have been incredibly, really nice, and uh, they're doing media all over the place, pushing not just a Catholic agenda, but a Christian agenda in this country in an advocacy way. They're working for political candidates that are upholding conservative and Christian values. So check them out at catholicvote.org. And right now we're going to pivot over and I'm going to be bringing up Mr. Peter Johnson. How are you doing, buddy? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, actually. Uh, the beard, I know you told me it was a clip-on, but it looks fantastic. Uh, it is very sporting. Folks, he looks like this in real life, but he's what? You're about like 7 foot 11, something like that? Close, yeah, some, somewhere in there. <laughs> like, like a giraffe, I don't know. Yeah, well, I used to run around. My buddy was a, my dive partner when I was in the Air Force was, I think he was 6 foot 9, and uh, and I'm, you know, I'm about 5'8", so it's like a, like a Scotty dog and a great Dane kind of hanging out together. It's, I always end up with like really tall, cool buddies like that. But um, you've got the cool, to, the logo on. First of all, tell people like where you grew up and and, and we'll just get into yeah. your background and then we're going to roll straight into this thing and start talking about the fams. Yeah. So originally from the Midwest, uh, Minnesota, which uh, we, we talked at SHOT Show a little bit about the riots that happened, but from Minnesota uh, and then like a lot of people in nine, 9-11 happened, uh, felt the calling to join the military and then left for Texas because the Air Force and 
bounced all over and then uh, came back to Minnesota for a little while and then headed out to New York with the Air Marshals around 09. So Midwest originally, and that's where I'm at right now. Yep. And then were you at the, is it the New York field office with the fans? Yep. New NIFO, uh, New York field office for five years. And uh, in D.C., I'm sorry, in the FBI, it's kind of considered like one of the two biggest field offices and I probably vies for the worst places to work with uh, the Washington field office. Is that the same story for you all? 100%. It's a WFO, Washington field office, and NIFO. Uh, in the New York field office, it says if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, which is true because it's just a horrific place to work. But Yeah, it's not exactly, I think, the way that uh, Sinatra meant it when he was singing that sort of stuff, was it? <laughs> Not, not at all, but it's, uh, yeah, around the Fed, everything I've heard from other friends in different agencies is New York and D.C. are are the highest ops tempo and just generally the most rough offices to work in, cost of living, all those other reasons. Yeah, that's the big thing, I think, for a lot of federal agents. Um, cost of living is brutal in certain areas, and even with the offset, um, and then especially if you're away from home all the time, that's also got to be tough. So fams are away from home. How often? How many nights a year do you think uh, when you were doing that, were you away? Um, the probably four, four to five nights a week there, there, the ops tempo was so insane out of New York. I mean, they would run you, they had rotating days off for a while. So you have what mixed days off, like five days work one day or one day off and then fly again. You're going out to the middle East, then coming back to the West coast, then back to Europe, back to sub-Saharan Africa, and you'd wake up and not even know what country you're in. Yeah, that's that's brutal, too. Uh, and then you've got to also be locked on when you're on the plane. We're going to talk about the mission set a little bit. Um, we did bring on Sonia Labosco, who's uh, retired, obviously, and is working with the National Council for your for your old employer. And I just want other people to have another kind of take on it. Let's let's uh, reel it back to high school. You came out of high school. You're in um, you're in Minnesota. And then did you immediately go and join the Air Force out of high school or did you go to school first? Uh, no. So joined the military. I was at the right age to be eligible to join the military right as 9-11 happened. Um, as those of us who were around when it happened, we remember that the recruiting, uh, you couldn't get on base for months. They shut down all bases. So I finally got a basic training slot in, I believe it was January of 2002. That's very prompt, yeah. though, right afterwards. So did you they didn't even have a very much time in the delayed enlistment program, just rolled straight in there and right off yeah. to Lackland. Yeah. Do you remember the Lackland pterodactyl? Did they have that going when you were there? Lackland pterodactyl. What is it? Because <laughs> I was still there when 321st was right on the fence line. Right. And I don't think this anymore. So we we had this somebody warned me about the Lackland pterodactyl when I went to basic and I went as a 27 year old. So a very different animal. Right. Uh, and enlisted with a college degree. I, so I show up there and I get this, uh, this drill instructor who starts screaming at me and he's basically yelling, like, I don't want to see you flinch at the position of attention. I don't care. And he's using colorful language. If a pterodactyl comes and, you know, takes a dump on your shoulder. And apparently that's the, that's the Lackland pterodactyl thing. Uh, they do it to everybody. I watched kids, you know, flinching and moving all over the place and just getting crushed. You know, I was a grown up. You yell at me. You're just one yeah. other person in my life who's done it. <laughs> True story, especially coming in at, you said 27. Yeah. That would be when you have like 17 year olds coming in to 27. There's a lot of life experience between those two, those 10 years. The hundred percent. So you went in and did you train as security forces? Was that your, uh, your yep. AFSC? Yep. 501 C3, uh, went straight from the pipeline into security forces, then air base ground defense school. 
uh, and then got into, I forgot what the operation was right after we graduated, but there was some like Northern Watch or something. It was a counterterrorism stateside uh, deployment. But all the post 9-11 stuff of trying to figure out what's going to happen in the country and how big is this terrorism thing going to be. And uh, did six years all through and through, 02 to 08. Okay. And some of the specialties that you did, you mentioned uh, designated marksmen. I know there's a lot of trainings you can do. And there's there's guys that are checking IDs at the gate. And then there's guys that are out there running around and, and doing real work overseas. Um, I guess everybody potentially could do that, but not everybody is actually going to do that when it comes to the security forces. Uh, uh, yeah. The security forces, for people that don't know, the uh, security forces, is the job is kind of twofold. It's either you're in a law enforcement on-base security role or you're in air-based ground defense uh, which can include off base, which is what you want to do. Uh, thankfully, I like, I I like the way you said that too. It's what you want to yeah. do. It's what it's what people who it's, looking or looking to be downrange want to do, right? Yeah, you definitely everything. I mean, even with the insanity, everything was great off base. When you come back on base, that's when you have to deal with all the just BS of military life, where you're actually working. So, I focused more, especially on my last deployment, 06 and 07, off base. So we would spend 14 hours in our patrol zone every day outside the wire, which was way more fun than checking IDs or sitting in a tower, hoping that some people are going to run across a field and start shooting at you. I like that you said hoping too. It gets really boring up in those towers. A hundred percent. I could imagine. Yeah. Everybody wants to do the mission they're trained to do. Uh, as far as specialized skill sets, what kind of things did you do? Additional kind of uh, skills and training did you do while you were in, uh, in that AFSC? So uh, went through combat arms training and maintenance towards the end of my uh, uh, enlistment. So it's actually a really good school down at, again, Lackland, but it's a formal instructor school on not just weapon platforms, but how to teach adults and people who think and not just regurgitate information. Um, but deployed, we were blowing up stuff every other day or so. And then we were doing the fast, not the Marine Corps fast, but the air marshal or the, pardon me, the air force fast, which is flyaway security team. So you'd fly all through Iraq. I didn't get over to Afghanistan, but anywhere that a C-130 could land in uh, Iraq, we were doing flyaway security teams, whether it was a ground security mission where you are the sacrificial force to keep, allow the aircraft to take off, or you're a flight deck denial. If you're, uh, transporting pucks or uh, POWs or uh, valuable assets like generals or politicians or something else as they're flying through uh, Iraq, the entire country. That makes sense. And when you say combat arts, is that the Red Hats? The Is that the Red Hat School? Yep. Yeah, that's the Red Hat School. So uh, for what it's worth, at least the Air Force has a formal firearms instruction program. Mm -hmm. I believe it's a couple months long. It's been a while, but to just focus on how to teach people for a couple months full-time it for what it's worth for military it was a pretty good instructor instructor development course and then obviously that took pretty well and you you were competent and capable i know you're you're so when i say you're a big guy i mean that in a, in a very serious way people should understand that you got big hands and it makes it makes a difference being able to control uh, a firearm particularly a handgun if you have the kind of the bigger mitts and the bigger body behind it and uh, and that obviously led to you being kind of a stud shooter which is what the fams do right i mean you ended up going there yeah so i the part i loved about the fams was i thought i was a good shooter in the military i was a expert marksman and designated marksman and the one of the good shooters in our unit getting out of that i'm like okay i'm a good shooter and i shot a lot by myself and 
uh, trained constantly, even after the military. And when you get into the air marshals, I'm like, okay, I'm a good shooter. And then you realize how much better you can get when you're in an environment that is driven towards perfection of marksmanship and uh, the ability to run a gun opposed to shoot a gun. And there's a huge difference. So we were shooting, I think, your old duty gun of uh, 229-357 SIG. Did you guys have that still in the, uh, no, no oh, that I, was secret service. Sorry. Yeah. Secret. Yeah. So you guys, I know a lot of secret service guys ended up because it was all under DHS at some point. And that's, yep. I think that's how the contract actually went over that way. But yeah, you were shooting kind of a zippy round out of those, those sweet SIGs. Yeah. So a 357 SIG and for the shooters listening, 357 SIG, uh, nine mil projectile basically on a 40, uh, Smith and Wesson casing neck down, just super snappy round. And then, uh, plus P ammo. I, they've since moved away from it, but during our time, you're a lot of rounds down range. Yeah. Let's break that down just for folks that are my, my more novice firearms, but a, a plus P is going to be the load of the amount of pressure that that round has behind it. And when you start adding a P round or a plus P round, you're, you're, incrementally increasing the speed and the, and the pressure inside the, the chamber, which means you get a faster muzzle velocity. But m- mostly what it means is it feels like you're shooting something that is trying to get out of your hands a lot harder. It is, uh, and it's good for self-defense and it's good for, for aggressive actions as needed, but um, definitely it makes it a, a challenge to shoot those things. Oh yeah. So if you can shoot that well, you can shoot, you can pick up any gun and it's uh, pretty easy to shoot it after that. I can totally imagine that. All right. So you went through the FAMS Academy in 2010. How did you choose FAMS of all the different sort of federal law enforcement out there? What what led you that route? So um, kind of happenstance. At the time, I was working for a police department in Minnesota part-time as non-sworn because you needed a four-year to be sworn. I already had my two years knocked out, uh, but I was going through my four-year program while I was uh, coming up the ranks. And that was kind of the the pipeline, if you will, to get a sworn position at that specific PD is you worked 38 hours part-time, finished up your four-year degree, and then got in. Well, the financial collapse happened right as I got the job. So the housing market's tanking. They're laying off all the, uh, like our Intel analysts and everybody else at the PD. And I'm looking at my name on the list. I'm like, there's only a couple people behind me. So I talked to the captain and I said, is it, do you know where this is going to go? He's like, we have no idea how deep this is going to cut. I'm like, okay, are you okay if I start applying out somewhere else? Cause I just got this job and, uh, he's gave me his blessing, if you will. Yep. And a friend of mine from the military said, Hey, did you know the air marshals are hiring? I'm like, Oh, well we did the air marshal mission in Iraq with the fast. And I really like that. So let's give it a shot. Um, so I applied in, I think I started the application process in early 08 and then, uh, Finally got a job offer late 09. Okay, so you were going into the FAMS about the time that I had enlisted because I went in in, in uh, June, okay. I think, of, of 2009. So so you went in there and you did, what, six years? Is that correct? Five total. Five yep. total. So, uh, 09 to end of 2014, 2015. So Phil and I were talking before you got on about the FAMS as an organization and in many ways, kind of the, you know, the bastardized redheaded stepchild of federal law enforcement, just not a lot of love, a lot of not uh, just very few people understand what the mission is. And, and I think probably really even worse when it comes to bureaucrats, right? So we were mm-hmm. talking about how tough it is, like the people that actually stick it out and do 20 years with the FAMS are either a special breed of tough, or maybe they just are not got their head up and looking around or what's, how tough is it to, yeah. to survive in that agency? You know what? Uh, first, I'll say 
some of the best people I've ever worked with in my life were in the air marshal program on the front lines, like truly some of the strongest Patriots, best fighters, best shooters, best tacticianers. These guys rock stars, Mm -hmm. honestly, I'm not talking about, we all had worked with people that you want to forget. And thankfully I've forgotten about those people. (laughs) I'm talking about the, the rock stars that I did work with. And some of them are still in the program right now. Sure. Um, But it, the most people don't know the fans, the air marshal program has been around since the sixties, 1962. It's not a new program. Uh, on nine 11, there was 33 air marshals total. So yeah, it's had a history of kind of like these huge multi-thousand, uh, air marshal pushes where they increase because of hijackings or skyjackings. And this was like seventies and eighties when it was going on. Right. And then they, cut the budget as everybody does. And it kind of just kept going through this, but it initially was under the FAA, the federal aviation administration, which makes a lot more sense because the FAA is not a law enforcement agency and the air marshals were a counterterrorism agency, not a law enforcement. And there is a pretty big difference on how you approach that topic. Yep. But then it did get bastardized, especially after nine 11 went into, I think it was originally uh, the FAA, and then it bounced quickly to someone else, uh, Customs and Border Protection, then it got into TSA, and then downhill from there. But the reason there's a lot of former Secret Service in the Air Marshals is uh, I found out, and this is one of my old supervisors who was Secret Service, said, yeah, a lot of the old guys that they wanted to get out of the Secret Service who were non-performers, they pushed them over to the Air Marshals. And gave them a, they could pull their retirement, get another salary, and build another retirement while they got rid of them out of a, the uh, the Secret Service side. So, of course, people were always wondering. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, Just promote so them to the most wondering. critical space, right? Like take them away from money laundering uh, investigations in New Orleans and put them into a plane where somebody might try to hijack it. Yeah, just wild. But, so the it is a very bastardized um I apologize but it is it agency with some drawing some of the best dudes I've ever worked with in my life by contrast led by some of the dumbest people I've met in my life at the top levels and most of those that when I was working there at the top level they they've already gone I don't know what it's like now but uh, from hearing from my friends in and obviously watching your show and um staying in contact with just old teammates. It seems like it's it's up to the same old behavior. Really good skill set. Very talented people. Crazy awesome, unique capability of being able to deploy trigger pullers anywhere in the world within minutes. I mean, you can you can flood it anywhere in the world with covert, well trained people who can work by themselves. They don't need any service and support. They can trans. Uh, they can go into any country, come and go as they please. And they're very comfortable with it with no no crazy logistics um or spin-up time but yeah. then and even as we're hearing now it's kind of morphed into just another bureaucratic weird organization that gets used and abused yeah definitely that and which is really disappointing on so many levels but uh i do appreciate the correction there because i was i was sitting there thinking i'm like yeah the way i said that doesn't sound right i've got two buddies that are uh current fbi right now 
former fams, and they were two of my favorite guys to work with, hands down, exactly the way you described it. Good tacticians, capable when it comes to fighting, capable when it comes to being a physical animal, you know, understands the three-dimensional space where they were working. We worked surveillance together, and, you know, those are the guys I want having my back. I know they can pull the trigger and put exactly what they need to do. And uh, end of the day, it's like, what a sad loss for the program. But so many great dudes that are former fams, um, and people that are stuck in there on the front lines. And then, like you said, led by some of the worst, the FBI is the same way in a lot of ways, like, it's just the worst management you could imagine. Right. Yep. It's it, un, unfortunately it's consistently now with our, uh, my current work, we travel coast to coast, border, to border training, state, local, and, uh, federal law enforcement. So we come across some feds and I always have the same conversation as we're having right now is how is it? Oh, guys on the ground for the most part, really good people. DC is completely a, a gong show it's ridiculous 100 and we're going to definitely talk about what you're doing right now because i think people are going to find that fascinating um, i want to just kind of cover sort of the mission set that you did when you were in the fams and kind of before you got out and then maybe you can tell me you know what what was the final uh decision point to leave five years is kind of a make or break time because somewhere between five and ten years you decide whether you're going to be there for the next you know 10 or 15 after that so you know what did you do in and, and then you know what what changed your mind to go private yeah. So initially getting out of the academy, uh, phenomenal training. Some of the best shooters on the planet were cadre. So training with these guys, super gun ho get into the mission set. You start getting good mission packets of um, known terrorist affiliate uh, terrorists and their affiliates or plus ones. And you're doing surveillance packages on those guys tra traveling all over the world. Obviously it wears you down a bit, but you felt like you were doing the right thing and you were, um, the mission made sense, even on the frustrating days. Well, then it started morphing midway through my time in where you started getting packets on people with no derogatory information whatsoever. I, I can't go into details specifically, but normally it would to anyone, it would make sense of why you would previously be doing a, a mission on this person because you read the packet and you're like, OK, they've done X, Y and Z. That makes sense why we'd want to watch these people. And then you start getting packets on people that they haven't done anything. We couldn't find, I couldn't find if they'd had a parking ticket and they're not international Americans. So that was a, for me personally, that was a huge tipping point. I remember sitting in the bullpen one day, uh, bullpen is like where all of our computers are at the office. It's a, your team set up there and during your office days, you're just BSing with everyone. And we started talking about some of the stuff that's going on. And you realize that it wasn't just our team. It wasn't just my my squad. It was it was happening to other guys, too. They were getting these really weird packets that had seemingly no nexus, what we use nexus to terrorism. There was nothing there. There was no there there, as they say. Right. What and, year was this? Uh, I'd have to go back, but it would probably be right around... 11 or 12, 2011, 2012, mm -hmm. somewhere in there. Um, it, it got so bad. I even emailed the director myself and I'm like, cause the open door policy or whatever. Hey, this <laughs> that, that's fake by the way. <laughs> that's a trap. Oh, obviously. <laughs> well, more importantly, like ethically I started seeing this. I'm like, okay, the bare minimum I have to, I talked to my supervisor. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. He's like, yeah, I don't know. Talk to everyone in the chain. They're like, I don't know. So emailed the director, didn't hear anything back because my concern was if we're using our resources or the 
the citizen, the taxpayer's resources to go after people that I can't find a nexus to terrorism. We're trying to stop the next 9-11. Why are we going after this uh, for theoretical John Doe, who has no nexus to terrorism, no documented criminal history, uh, not a threat to intermodal transportation, anything? I'm like, it just doesn't make sense. Emailed the director, nothing. Emailed congressman, nothing. I'm like, no one cares. Literally, no one cares. We we have air marshals, and this is a little dirty secret of the air marshals. You can find it. Uh, you've probably talked to a couple, but the suicide rate of the air marshals was horrific. The ops tempo, these guys were traveling nonstop globally. I mean, just insane amounts of flight hours, insane amounts of trips. And we're happy to do it, especially if there's an increase in threat. But the suicide rate, it got to the point where on our home intranet, not internet, intranet, our internal internet, it would show like, hey, news and uh, fam or air marshal news. And I remember one summer, it was just like photo, 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 photo. And it was all guys that killed themselves. And I'm like, why, why are we wasting this talent, these uh, patriots for BS, like complete BS. And that was a pretty big disenfranchisement uh, for me. Obviously, the ops tempo was ridiculous. Uh, New York, I don't know if you've ever, if you've lived there for too long, that didn't help the situation no. either. Um, so you put all that together and it, the writing was just kind of on the wall for me where I said, okay, it was a Chalk it up for what it was. It was a great experience. I worked with some of the best people I've ever met in my life. Not a huge fan of living in New York at all. Um, and I said, maybe could I do more somewhere else and have more of a sense of uh, purpose in my life? So in about 2014, I started looking at transitioning out and uh, finally pulled the ripcord. And when you stepped out, what did you step into right away? Because starting a company is usually not uh, part one, there's usually some transition, but you know, some people take the plunge and go the whole way. And I'm curious how that, yeah, how that looked. I was, uh, either super smart or super stupid. I don't know. Um, cashed out everything I could sold my investment, uh, real estate. I just had one condo, got rid of that, dumped everything I had into starting a business and got what I call an MBA, the very hard way, made a lot of mistakes and started morphing through what what business actually is. And thank God I'm still here today and still able to train. That's awesome. Actually, I think that's the that's the barrier to entry most people don't have. It's the courage, especially feds. They don't have the courage to step off into the void uh, if they have no private, and you had no private sector experience, at least not any you know professional long-term experience with it. So doing nope. that is even kind of more courageous. I think that's what keeps a lot of feds in place, even though they know that what they're doing is wrong or what they're a part of is awful. Is that kind of the same experience that you had watching these people? Yeah, it was. Um, and I, I, God bless them. I still talk to old teammates and other feds still this day, uh, to this day. And I've helped a couple transition out where they're like, Hey, I kind of want to get out what I want to get into this field and helping them like draft the resume for it, get into contract negotiation, et cetera. But a lot of them get addicted to that paycheck and the fear of the non-guaranteed uh, paycheck. Actually, that brings up a point. This is actually, this is part of that decision-making process. And I can't believe I forgot it because I'm talking about paycheck. So everybody talks about get into the Fed, get into the government, guaranteed paycheck, guaranteed paycheck. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. 
Well, I remember the shutdown. Uh, the sh- there was a couple shutdowns that happened while I was in. Somebody can go back and look at the dates on that. I don't remember. All I remember is they were horrible. So we stopped getting paid, still out of work. But more importantly, and this is where most people don't, I don't think, get it. We had government travel cards. So we had a credit card that we'd put all of our hotels on, all of the stuff. And think about traveling that much. That credit card can get into five, ten grand in a blink of an eye. Just the ops tempo is so crazy. We're responsible for paying that. And it's so, your it's your credit that it's gonna hit if you don't. Oh yeah. And you'll you'll get written up and you'll get fired if you don't pay your credit card, obviously, because it's your duty to pay your credit card. Now the the trade-off is you put your travel voucher in, you get your travel voucher paid, and you pay your credit card. Easy. Well, unless you were budgeting to randomly just spend an extra 15 grand over a month or so, which most people don't plan on, and you can make it work. It's miserable, but you can make it work. And it just overnight, I'm like, okay, I'm not getting paid. I still have to work, which I understand we're public servants and we're providing a a national security role. And I get that totally fine. Then I still have to pay the credit card that I keep racking up because we're traveling still because you're telling me to travel. And then I have to, I have to pay it hoping that the, (laughs) the, the government comes back open and pays our card. So that was also a, Hmm. Maybe this isn't as stable as I thought it was. It, it's interesting. You got a uh, you got a very strong head nod from producer Phil in the background because you know fifteen years of doing that and a lot of what Phil was doing was um, was surveillance work where we had the same kind of ops tempo and travel very frequently where they were putting us on the road. Not common for a lot of law enforcement. In fact, most federal law enforcement doesn't do that, but uh, nope. surveillance teams do, and obviously FAMs are doing that full time. Very interesting. It's, it's. I hadn't even thought of that angle of it, but you're right. It is. I remember the sequester in twenty. Uh, what is it? Twenty eighteen. End of twenty eighteen. Yep. And everybody was complaining about whether they were going to miss a mortgage payment, and we only missed one paycheck. And I thought that was hilarious, only because it's like, what a what a dangerous situation to put your national security folks in. They've got a top secret clearance. They've got the SCI read-ins, and they are one mortgage payment away. They are one paycheck away from being defaulting on a home. That's care. That's crazy insanity absolute insanity but that it goes into the just overall how dc runs and it is insanity yeah it is they don't care at all i want to read something and then i'm going to pivot into your your company because i'm fascinated by that and actually i'm fascinated about all of the aspects of it there's so much of it that's come on with an active shooter in texas uh over the weekend with the uh the, the neely situation and people stepping in and, and having to be their own protectors i just want your take on this we we got an an email that uh, i did a whole twitter space on we had about 300 people on a friday night listen to this and this is an email from oscar hernandez who's a an asac out of the atlanta field office with the fams so folks this is on twitter phil can bring this up for us and it just says all oh, we've received an update from the uh, jcc which is the joint coordination center does that sound right Yeah, I think so. Sounds right to me. Uh, That all field officers are going to increase their deployments of personnel with wave number 13 deployment dates of this. It's a pay period. The Atlanta field office is going to send 17 FAMs per wave. That means there's going to be a nationwide 175 FAMs are going to be sent plus seven senior FAMs, which are the supervisors, I guess. A total of 182 law enforcement FAMs personnel. Uh, It's going to be 26 people per wave being sent down from these offices to go down to the border. You think that uh, FAMs are well suited going to the Texas border, going to the Arizona border to process migrants? Is that a skill set you think they're training at the the FAMs academies? 
No, I'll, I'll say the fans are highly trained and very flexible in their their ability to think on their feet because they have you operate with almost no um, direct supervision in the sense of there's not somebody over your shoulder constantly telling you what to do. Sure. Just like you guys when you're doing intel or uh, surveillance packages, you have to problem solve in the field and there's no daddy you can call and be like, hey, I have a problem. Can you solve it for me? They're like, I don't even know where you are. So the air marshals could. <laughs> I like that. Could. That's true. They don't know where Honestly. you are. Um, like, they, I'm in West could. Virginia. What do you got? And they're like, mm, yeah, like, is that a state? I, I remember calling my supervisor. I'm like, hey, we've got a problem, blah, blah. He's like, okay, what country are you in? I'm like, exactly. Got it. Exactly. But air marshals, where they do really well is shooting and behavioral detection. Really good. Um, obviously, staying awake is a phenomenal at it. It's, it's a skill yeah. and being able to maintain focus over long periods of time. It is a skill for yeah. sure. But yeah, but sending them down to the southern border to process um, illegals entering the country doesn't make any sense. Now, if you were saying, hey, go down there and we have we want you guys to be the um, almost like the first phase of behavioral detection to say we we think this person's story is BS, like go chat with them because you see enough people where you start picking up the indicators of deception and um deviations from baseline behavior so that would be a, a more appropriate use case like we would do i personally did stuff for the united nations general assembly looking for suicide bombers in crowds because behavioral detection that makes sense but sitting them down to a processing there's, there's center, also like a like a side benefit that you can see over the whole crowd like yeah that, that's one of your I unique special skills just picked me because i'm a giraffe <laughs> <laughs> that's true but yeah going down there because i've got buddies and i won't say any of their names, but I've got buddies down there right now that have done multiple rotations on the border. And they've, some of them initially volunteered for it. Cause they're like, okay, Hey, this is the mission. Like I'm a Patriot. Like I'm a public servant. This is my job. We're going to protect the country. They get down there and they're like, we're not protecting the country. We're just letting this stuff through. That's where the disenfranchisement and also the disrespect, just complete abuse of resources is happening right now. And they don't have law enforcement authorities on the border is what I was told. Is that, is that your understanding as well? As in they can't, uh, they might be able to carry a gun, but they, they can't uh, actually go and enforce federal law in a broad spectrum. Yeah. I, well, every law enforcement agency has their narrow jurisdiction. Ours is really good on intermodal transportation, Tokyo convention. I say ours is in my previous job, of sure. course, but um, the, the border protection enforcement, I mean, it's, you would almost have to put them in a situation to for deadly force to happen, which they could use deadly force, but you'd have to force them into a situation where they would use it and then they'd be authorized to use it. Got but it. again, that doesn't seem like a, a good use of the resources, if you will, for a agency that costs almost a billion dollars a year to run. Yeah, one-tenth of what the FBI costs, and you're talking about just... They have one really specific specialized skill set that they hone and craft, and then we're not going to use the tool for what it's for. I, I always told people that having the FBI the way it was right now, because it's an intel agency that has a you know a law enforcement capability, it's like taking a screwdriver and welding it on the end of a hammer, and then you've got this really bulky, awkward you know screwdriver, but you've got a hammer that can't get close to a lot of stuff too, because it's got this screwdriver on the end of it. The balance is all off, and it's it's proximity. So you just have a tool that doesn't work. It does two things poorly instead of one thing really well. 
And then you've taken this honed knife and you're like, you know what that'd be really good for? Let's just unscrew all these light plates. We're going to take all the, the face plates off all my, uh, all my electrical outlets with this freaking sharp ass yeah. knife. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's disrespectful, not only to the talent that is recruited in the fans, but also to the American taxpayer because they deserve more than that. And they, they have an expectation, right? Of what that, what that crew is doing. They should, they should have an expectation. It's their money. Right. Sending these guys, sending these guys into training to get them trained better than anybody else, specifically with a pistol, to operate in an undercover capacity internationally at a moment's notice, deploy to meet threats uh, within that intermodal transportation network. That is, that's what the the deal is. They're like, okay, we'll we'll fund this, but to just throw them down on the southern border as a ride along or to help warm up sandwiches in a processing facility is insanity. Truly, truly it is. Um, folks, if you want more hot takes on this, we did an entire Twitter space that went on for um, at least three hours, maybe more with Sony Labosco. So you can listen to more of that stuff. Um, I want to pivot to something I think that is actually more broadly interesting to people at this point. Talk, let's talk about Archway. Let's talk about uh, how you decided to get into that space. Let's talk about some of the work that you guys do. And then we may just freeform on some of these these current event topics because this is your business now. And, you know, unfortunately, business is full of opportunities, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, um. well, Archway started, actually, I was in, I'll never forget it, I was in Istanbul. And middle of the night, my phone rang, picked up the phone, had multiple, as you guys probably, multiple phones, picked up the phone that was ringing. And I'm like, yeah, hello. Again, traveling as much as we did, no idea what's going on. Somebody's talking about a bomb. I'm like, okay, was there a bombing at Istanbul airport or something or whatever? And look. Who do we freeze? Yeah. Bear with us one second, folks. I think you guys froze, but. Yeah, we did. Uh, All right. So okay. we, I got bombing and then you were saying. Yeah, let me check one second. Try that one more time. So uh, I, how Archway started was I was in Istanbul. I don't know how much you guys heard. but Yeah, I, I heard that there was a bombing on a phone and then it kind of disappeared out on us. Okay, so I looked at my phone. It was my mother. It was my private phone. Oh. Yeah. Bomb didn't explode. She was at church. So for the Catholics in the uh in the audience who are aware there's a thing called adoration so uh catholics pray at church 24 hours a day seven days a week 365. so she was in an uh she was fulfilling an adoration slot and a police officer came into the adoration chapel and said hey i need you to leave right now we found a bomb uh, against one of the doors in this small little town in minnesota and she's like what this is a town of like sub 4,000 people, not big at all. So she called me and she's like, the police officer had me look around my car to see if anything was tampered or suspicious. And then when I said it wasn't, he said, get in your car, get out of here. Um, and they got rid of the bomb, how, however that happened. But at that point, I'm like, and this is already, I'm hitting that disenfranchisement with my current mission set, being in Istanbul for the seventh time that month. Or whatever it was and i'm like wow so if a church with a school attached i mean these people have no idea how to handle this and air marshals believe it or not some of our a lot of our training is explosives because of the concern of bringing a bomb on an aircraft i'm like well 
maybe I should start a company to help train schools and churches on how just reasonable mitigation for incidents like this. Because I don't think any of them are ready. And this was already during a time where we saw increased violence at faith-based or houses of worship in the U.S. It was right around that time where those attacks started skyrocketing. So that all those pieces together kind of uh, brought me to the point of like, yeah, you know what? I'm done. Maybe I'll look at something else and transition out, start our trade. Fast forward, and that's what we did. Now, you mentioned to me you got three buckets of business. Maybe tell people what those three look like and then um, sort of the diversity of, of training you go through that, which has got to be, you know, depending on the, the people you're training, you're going to get a very, very different uh, class, I have to imagine. Very much so. The So the three arches of Archway or the three buckets of our business is uh, law enforcement training, state, local, and federal law enforcement. And most of that training is based on uh, weapons development, SWAT team training, uh, firearms instructor development, or uh, solo active or solo officer response to active shooter, and some vehicle courses and stuff like that. Then we have our uh, middle bucket, which is our corporate clients, and that's more workplace violence mitigation, crime prevention through environmental des- design, helping to like harden their facilities while not turning it into a prison-looking facility. Um, and then the last archway or the bucket is faith-based, and that's a lot honestly, a lot more of a charity that we do now, just because the finances are never there and we just try to help them as much as we can. That checks out. Let's um, let's talk about a little bit, some of the current events that are out there. You've got experience training people, everyone from, you know, folks who carry a gun professionally to folks who probably wake up in the morning and, you know, would be in, what would we call it? Uh, Gary Cooper's, you know, white color mode, you know, the, the multiple yep. colors. Um, do, you, do you know the colors off the top of your head? Are those something you can speak to a little bit and kind of explain to people? Yeah, uh, and I'll probably butcher some of them, but code black is where you just shut down. You got sensory overload. Your uh, your Rolodex hasn't really filled in on what to do in that specific specific situation. That's where people are in shock and they just they're not responding. Um, white, I believe, is something to the effect of you basically think the world is a bunch of unicorns and everything's fine around you. Yes, moms demand action, maybe. Yeah. Everywhere between there, I think there's a condition like yellow and red. Yeah, yellow, where, orange, and red. Exactly right. Yeah. So where it's a sliding scale between those two. Um, and the goal is, from my understanding, is trying not to stay in that red all the time because, honestly, it's not sustainable. Anybody that's, yep, who walks that's, around. Exactly. That's like, your burnout range. Yeah, you're, you're never going to be able to sustain. The key is just pick up on indicators early, focus on what you need to focus on, and then kind of relax on mostly everything else. Um, we both probably have buddies who live in the red and they're really hard to be around for too long. It's like, there's not, this isn't a bond flick. Ninjas are not coming from the ceiling panels yes. any second of the day. Like it violence. Once you've seen enough violence, you kind of start seeing the indicators of who you have to pay attention to and what indicators you need to be aware of and then start elevating your own, uh, response without any risk of giving away your training for free because it takes uh hours and hours and days and days to just even get the baseline of these things but maybe kind of tell people some of the stuff that you're teaching the kind of behavioral techniques you're you're having people observe on i'm i'm more than happy to kind of pump a business that does this because so many people are looking around going you know what is my responsibility in the world they often think that it's the police are going to come and save them and i think we all kind of are realizing that's not the case it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the covenant school you know the the police who who showed up there and we could do a kind of a quick talk on that too but 
you know, excellent operators who just had the right tools, the right tactics and nailed it. And yet you still can't beat the bad guy that's already decided to come and do something. So what kind of things are you looking at that people can be aware of, even if they're unarmed, you know, like your average mom, your average person who's a retiree, who's not going out there trying to, you know, go to CrossFit gyms and carry a gun every single second of the day, which I advocate for maybe not the CrossFit, but the gun part. Yeah. So the start with, uh, and I was on, I don't know if Michelle Tafoya's podcast and it was after an active shooter and I, she's like asked a similar question. And my response was start with the concept of evil is real. And if you don't believe that nothing I say matters after this, if you don't believe that evil's real, I can't help you because what happened in Texas or what happened at covenant or what happened at Parkland, that is pure evil. And to fail to acknowledge that you're setting yourself up for failure. So if you get, if you acknowledge that evil is real, now we can have a conversation. Um, then it's acknowledge that most people act similarly in a similar way, in a similar situation. And I know that's kind of vague, but hear me out. If you think of like uh, a coffee shop or a restaurant that you normally go to frequently, there's a baseline behavior that's pretty stereotypical, if you will, for that specific um, coffee shop or restaurant. And we, we, I use the air marshal analogy this way. Have you ever flown to Vegas? And I know the answer is yes, but Bill also? Yep. Yep. So everybody's flown to Vegas. Now think about, kind of visualize, I'm big on visualization. Put yourself on that flight from wherever you left from to Vegas. What would you describe as the baseline or the normal kind of average behavior of most of the people on that flight. I feel like there's probably, you know, three buckets of people. There's people that are going home, so that's okay. There's probably a group of people that are really excited about going to Vegas. They look like the guys from Swingers at the beginning of the drive to Vegas, right? And then then maybe you've got someone in between who's got some business and they're just a grown-up and they're going to Vegas, but it's not like a thrill. But I think those are kind of your three categories off the top of my head. Perfect. Spot on. Now, remember the last time you left Vegas, What's the average behavior, generally speaking, of most of the people leaving Vegas going anywhere? Yeah, they're either dejected because they lost all their money, right? Or they're psyched because they just got married to some stripper or something. <laughs> like, you know, there's kind of like a very small percentage of those. You don't see a whole lot of like super positive energy sure. on a on a Vegas outbound flight. So part of uh, part of our training was blend in with whatever the the dress environment whatever is normal on that leg act that way so if people are clapping clap if people are just sitting there pecking away at the screen in front of them be that person mm -hmm. so the concept is acknowledge that most people it's actually um emergent norm theory so if you want to get a little nerdy with me for a second there's researchers uh i believe it's killian and somebody else but emergent norm theory and i might be butchering that but it's the concept that most people will change their behavior to fit in with a crowd mm -hmm. because of the instinctual need to feel connected with those around us. However, when you're there for a different purpose, you will act differently. And when we talk about a suicide bomber, I, I do this with uh, our aviation security clients, everybody in the room. And I'd ask you today, if you knew, absolutely knew today was the last day of your life, would you act differently today than you acted yesterday? Clearly. Absolutely. I mean, the certainty of your own mortality will change your behavior because there is no, 
thought process of there's a tomorrow. If you look at when we're looking for uh, specifically aviation or sports and entertainment for uh, suicide bombers like Ariana Grande bombing, look for behavior that is outside the baseline that bleeds indicators because they know deep down inside that today is the last day of their life. They will act differently than everyone else around them. So we start with behavior, transcending behavior from what they look like, what they're dressed like, everything else, because that all changes. But the behavior, the indicators are ultimately what matters because behavior is what presses a trigger, uses a knife or presses a detonator. So one of the things that I remember uh, doing surveillance that you have to really help new guys, new gals that are in the, the business overcome is the sort of guilty knowledge that you're there to watch people. And, and I got to imagine it works on the, the opposite way, too, for the bad guys. But like, for example, if I'm trying to spot you and I see you in an airport, if I were to naturally make eye contact with you, you're a tall guy, you stick out of a crowd, you got a big beard and long hair. So I go like, oh, that's that's like a tall guy with, you know, he looks like one of my old bosses. He looks like one of the dudes I used to work with. And I and if I make eye contact with you, I would either have a head nod or it would be a nothing. It'd be a neutral. We would just have an eye contact for a moment and leave. When I see people that are deliberately trying to avoid eye contact, that's weird, right? Like that's an indicator. Like, why are they trying to do that? That. And it's because they have the knowledge that they're trying to watch me. And when you watch new guys do surveillance, they're never trying to make eye contact with the subject. They don't want to have a pleasantry. Uh, they don't want to have that contact. And you got to break people of it. There's nothing more normal than walking up and seeing the subject that you're surveilling and going, hey, how's it going? The guy goes, oh, you know, crappy or whatever. And you go like, yeah, uh, well, you know, this weather would make anybody mad or something that's just a throwaway. And then they forget you. But if you go up there and you, they go, how's it going? And you go, no, oh, it's great. Yeah, it's fine. And then you walked off and you look really weird. Yeah, I'm not a cop. <laughs> I'm not a cop. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because people freeze in that that thing because they're not prepared for a reasonable interaction with normal people. So the, the change in that baseline is very pronounced. And then that person's like, that was weird. And now they're hinked up. Now they're looking around for what other weird things may happen. And nothing weird may happen again. But now you've set them at ed, you know, on an edge. Yeah, so we we start with a lot of uh, just like you guys the the behavioral side. I think it's an underappreciated skill set that can be developed. So even on our um, in 2019, I co-founded a tech startup where we use virtual reality, augmented reality to speed up training. And ultimately, it comes down to research proves that about an hour in a headset is equivalent to ten hours in a classroom, which is a phenomenal ROI on training time for sure. So we put. Our, one of our first products was actually an active shooter program for O'Hare and Midway airport systems that we launched in 2022. And now uh, this year we're launching a behavioral detection, situational awareness level one, and an IED uh, intro to explosives and uh, uh, blast mitigation, all in VR. So taking the knowledge of guys like you, guys like us, all of our network, putting it into a headset and trying to get them the same amount of training in a fraction of the time. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. So how does a regular person, so we've already talked about, you're going to have to accept that there's evil in the world. I agree with you hundred percent. If you don't understand that there's some evil out there, you've obviously never experienced it. Um, even if you can't theorize that, then we're going to have some real problems for the base understanding of you and I are not looking at the same world. Right. So that's pretty easy. Um, and then once they start kind of looking for these behavioral departures, what are some of the things that people can kind of look at and go, 
you know, we're all going to see ghosts in that space and, and surveillance guys are the best at it. Like every surveillance guy thinks they have a surveillance team on them at some point in time until you can actually lock up. Why, why would someone be following you? Which I have yeah. that reason now, which is fun. And, uh, <laughs> and then when you can actually say like, these are the reasons, you know, not just that I identify this person, but here's some concrete behaviors that are so far outside the deviation of normal. When I was at uh, El Paso's airport the other day, I landed, I slipped the guys I thought were surveilling me. I watched them go down to baggage claim. And 15 minutes later, they came back upstream towards the security area looking for me frantically which is hilarious but at the same time like that knocks that home for me it's like i might be being followed no i'm being followed and those are the two dudes that i already id doing it that's a different animal so yeah how do you how do you get from the, the you know i'm not going to see ghosts and kind of living without just being in the red like some of our buddies who are basically you know, like i said living in a bond flick yeah so the the part of it comes with the psychological preparedness of what are you willing to um take responsibility for in your own life. Like I'm not worried about a nuke happening right now here. Cause if it does, the probability is I'm within the blast radius of the twin cities Metro. And if it happens there, I'm going to die quickly or of radiation in a week or so. So right. I'm not really worried about that because that's outside of the scope of my control. Um, now I'm inside my house and we have layers of security that don't look like security because we harden locks and windows and stuff like that. Uh, security cameras that are hidden. So I'm not that stressed when, but at the same time, I, I have access to a firearm just as I'm guessing you do right now. Of course. And um, so I'm, I'm kind of analyzing what I'm going to take responsibility for at each second of the day. Now, when I go out, um, I'm lucky enough to be married. My wife is a baller. I used to say dancer, but then people got the wrong idea. She's a ballerina, classically trained so she was in a show in downtown Minneapolis last night. And so she's like, oh, we're going to have a cast after party afterwards. I'm like, that's fine. I'm, I'll be the sober cab. I'll drive. And I'm not going to drink because I'm not going down to a theater unarmed in Minneapolis because I'm going to take responsibility for myself and obviously her protection while I'm there. So there, therefore, when I come out, you do your quick little casual scan of just what's around me. Okay, homeless guy across the street. Fair enough. There's some people sitting out at a little restaurant having a drink. They're pretty low on my my radar. And then cars driving by, no abnormal pattern. We're good. So then taking that, that quick scan of your life and realizing you are not in a Bond film first and that you are not in a unicorn fairyland either. So <laughs> kind of bridge it and then control. The classic saying is control the controllables. Again, I can't stop if... Uh, or I can't help it if there's a vehicle that is an IED that was parked there or a V-Vibe that was parked there two days in advance in front of the theater. Like that's a good chance that's outside of my skill set uh, unless I happen to see some indicators based on my training and experience. So don't stress about the stuff you can't control. Acknowledge what you can control, what's inside your scope, and then work th through that to hone your either your hardware or your firmware to better mitigate. What do you what do you prioritize? Because everybody's only got X number of hours in the day, right? Not everybody is going to be able to sit and spend all their time like working up to operator status as a shooter, operator status as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu technician. You know, not everybody is going to have all the skills all the time. So if you were going to put like, this is the most important thing you should do for your personal protection, where do you start? And then maybe like the two runners up, if that. Yeah, so I would say the first, the biggest skill set in this is not uh, what people love to hear on Instagram, but the biggest skill set start with situational avoidance. 
So if you know that your skill set is not there and that you're not comfortable, competent, or uh, physically fit, or blah, 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 situational avoidance from a legal aspect is better anyway. Just avoid stupid situations. If you feel the situation's getting stupid, diddy mow out of there and just be done with it. Um, so I'd start with that. Then going into uh, that reasonable defense. Now, I always... you. Actually, can I ask a question yeah. of the FBI? So when you were in the academy, you had different people from different backgrounds in unarmed or uh, DM, defensive measures. or Yeah, we call them defensive you... tactics, but same idea. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, defensive tactics. So the disparity of force, like I'm 250 pounds and almost 6'5", and I've fought for a bit, and I'm comfortable fighting. If you put me up against... Um, like my sister, very lover to death, uh, mother of five. I mean, super short, maybe weighs like nothing on a good day. She will never beat me right. ever. No matter how much she could train with, with every UFC fighter in the world for the rest of her life. And she will never beat me. Right. At, I mean, outside of pulling OC and taking away my ability to see or breathe, which now she has a good chance of beating me. So acknowledge what your strengths and weaknesses are and then find ways of mitigating that through whether it's technology or um, or weapon platforms. I'm a huge fan of uh, Defense Tech OC. If you want to just break distance and not use deadly force, if you can avoid it, it's always a always a good uh, good decision in the civilian side to avoid deadly force if at all possible. Yeah, deadly just for your criminal, yeah, your criminal liability yeah. is nasty. Yeah, criminal and civil liability, because remember, even if you win the criminal, you still have the civil side, which is that can bankrupt you also. Um, so you're not going to go to jail if you win this, the criminal, but you might lose everything if you lose the civil. So the reasonableness of force, anytime I can get away, I love OC, great, great tool, solid flashlight. I was even carrying one at the theater with me last night, because again, if you get approached by just that low level idiot uh, criminal on the street, if I can avoid using actual physical violence against him, if we have to have an encounter, I'd prefer that. And a great flash to the face, take away their eyesight for a second and give them the opportunity to reevaluate their decisions in life. <laughs> That's such a good way of saying it. So there's a guy named DJ, uh, DJ Shipley. You're familiar with him? He runs a uh, training. Yep. You, I don't know him personally, but I know the name. Sure. And you kind of have some of the same vibe as DJ. And one of the things that I really like that I listen to him, and this is for folks who are not aware of uh, Shipley. He's a former SEAL Team 6 operator. Um, his story is actually heart-wrenching, and it's really incredible. His dad was a SEAL, too. I actually used to follow his dad, who does the he does the investigations into fake SEALs. And uh, Yes. So, yeah, he's found a ton of them. Yeah, Don Shipley. Interesting guy, too. You know, early social media adopter and was like really pissy about dudes that were faking SEALs. So I get that. But DJ Shipley says something about, you know, the idea of carrying an extra magazine. Now, when you're law enforcement, you got to carry an extra magazine because the possibility of getting of having to actively engage in a proactive shooting situation exists, although probably still pretty small. We've seen it go really quickly and you need it. But his take on not carrying an extra magazine when he's carrying his everyday carry pistol was something that changed my thought process. And his thought was, if I'm carrying an extra magazine, there's a possibility that I'm getting into a shooting situation where I have to reload. And if I've got to reload, I probably should be wearing body armor. If I got to wear body armor, I probably should have a rifle and some magazines for that. And if I'm doing all those, what in the hell am I doing there? And so your situational avoidance, I've never heard it said just that way. 
But it, it's 100% correct that if there's a possibility that you need to upgrade your capabilities to deal with the situation you're going on, you need to ask yourself why you're going there. Are you getting paid? You got to go get your mm -hmm. kid out of something nasty. There may be a place where you got to go get your kid out of somewhere ugly. And so that's a real yep. thing. But there's got to be a real compelling reason for you to engage somewhere where you have to carry more things. Yeah. So let's take the riots up in Minneapolis. I was actually uh, last night, one of the other um, performers, her husband uh, was a former Minneapolis cop who was on the rooftop during the riots trying to defend the third precinct from being burnt to the ground and obviously them getting burned up with it. Mm -hmm. And there was a point during those riots in the Twin Cities where it's like, okay, we're going to hunker down at home. People are calling like, hey, why aren't you going down there and getting involved with the riots and taking them down? I'm like, are you out of your mind? Like, right. Know the battle space, if you will. So, right. So you transition that even on. let's do it just to a current event. So yeah. this guy, uh, Perry goes down into the BLM riots, but he's driving for Uber, right? Mm -hmm. Totally different. Agreed. Maybe your take on that, because I think people are interested in that. Everyone has an instinct what self-defense looks like, and yet they're not professionals and they don't teach the number of people that you do. They don't have the backgrounds that guys like you and I necessarily have. I'd love to hear your take on it and, you know, the whys and why nots. Yeah. So to my knowledge, he was actively working at for Uber at the time. Like he was. That's his, our understanding. Uh, yep. Was up and he was taking rides, correct? That's my understanding. So too. Now, yep. Yep. So now he is a reluctant participant because he is physically at work. So to protect himself in a mobile office, a vehicle, uh, which is his property, still protected under the Fourth Amendment, he has reasonable means of privacy, right? But he also has the reasonable means of his own uh, self-preservation. So if he, when people talk about going down into a situation that doesn't directly affect you, there's a different conversation there. But for this, anytime when somebody's at work, I generally, unless some facts come out of left field, I generally give the benefit of the doubt to the person who is working as the reasonable actor in the equation. So when I heard that he was working at Uber and that uh, we all saw the video of his car was surrounded, if I'm not mistaken, correct, if I yep. get any data or facts wrong, please correct me. But I believe his vehicle was surrounded. And then he was approached by uh, somebody with a rifle. If I'm not mistaken. On yeah, the guy on was, was carrying a slung uh, AK-47 model. Yep. Yep. And then at some point, the rifle came up. Kind of like uh, a low, yeah, kind of a low ready. So they, they mentioned that it wasn't pointed at him, which you and I both know the difference. Maybe you can talk to some of that, you know, yeah. a low ready. How do you feel about that? Is that a threat to you? If you have a gun and you're looking at me the wrong way, you're a threat to me because <laughs> uh, we did a, there's a couple videos on YouTube where I did a one second draw from the holster on a target that was 200 yards away. And the concept is that actions faster than reaction. If you have a weapon and you're looking at me, not like a, Hey, what's up, man? Like, uh, I might shoot you. I know that I statistically have roughly about a half a second to one second of your reaction to put around on me. That is not a lot of time. I'm behind the power curve already. Right. Because so you've already decided something and you're carrying a weapon system. Correct. And you're carrying a weapon system that far out outseeds my capability of my defensive pistol that I have on me. So the disparity of force, but also the concept of, I've carried a weapon most of my adult life and I, I don't get in shootings really that often because <laughs> it turns I out around pulling guns on people and looking at them like I want to kill them right. because that kind of what we call uh, escalation of force can happen then. So when, 
when I see a video of um, somebody who's LARPing, for lack of better words, in the middle of a protest and then approaching somebody and trying to what we call uh, induce fear, which in the state of Minnesota, we used to have a thing uh, like strong armed robbery, where if you were implying or trying to show that you could use force, it was a strong arm. Yeah. In this case, he's clearly brandishing the minute he puts his hands on the weapon, I would say. Yeah. So if if his both uh, if the subject uh, suspect hands were clear and he's like, hey, get out of here, get out of here and get shot. Totally different story. As soon as both hands are in the weapon in any type of a fighting position and you're within range of me. Now it's a totally different story. There's no uh, I have not found any case law that requires an individual to be shot first before they defend themselves. And that's where it is, right? And that's the real piece of it. It's the action reaction thing. I know you've done the same drills that I've done. Um, by the way, pulling a, a one second draw and uh, and knock it around at 200 yards. That's a spicy, that's a spicy, spicy move. I can do that at about 15. Um, and I don't spend nearly as much time doing that stuff as I can. But that that is a testament to some serious skill. And there are people in the world that are like that. And if you come up against somebody, you're going to kill them in that situation because the skill set you have, and generally speaking, even my skill set is going to kill people if they decide to do something stupid, like put two hands on a weapon and put them you know, near my family. I'm going to end you. And I know you feel the same way just because I know we have that sort of commonality. It's, it's incredibly dangerous to see someone that has decided, like you say, LARPing and wants to walk into that role because they obviously are not considering the consequences of what they are implying to a skilled participant on the other end. Yeah, or even even to that fact, an unskilled participant. Take my sister again. If she has a uh, license to carry, permit to carry, whatever state you're in, whatever the verbiage is people use, she, all she has to be is in reasonable fear of great bodily harm or death. That is a general term that's used in most states. Now, obviously, look up your own state law if you're listening, but you should know what that what that threshold is for justifiable use of deadly force. And reasonable fear of great bodily harm or death, if you grab a rifle and you're looking at me, walking towards me and bringing it up, even if it's still at low ready with your hands on it and your posture is something I can articulate as a fighting stance, I am in reasonable fear of great bodily harm or death. And I don't want this interaction, but you are forcing it. And that's a huge difference. Let's talk about the Marine quickly, the the Jordan Neely death. I don't even know the Marine's name, and I think that's kind of interesting because I know the guy, the, the so-called victim, who was a, a homeless person that's been arrested, what, 44 times, something to that effect. Yeah, 42 you, or so. Yeah. So he's, he's uh, and they keep showing us uh, these videos from like 2011 when he's dancing in a, in a uh, street car and doing a Michael Jackson routine. That's obviously not what happened. Um, you lived in New York for a while. You've been on the subways. I've lived, I've not lived in, but my wife is from New York. I've, I've spent too much time in New York for my liking already. And I've seen these people. Um, what's your take on something like that? Because I think so, there's probably two. Um, there's probably two pieces to it that are really critical. Yeah the 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 key is one. I'm going to transcend that specific incidents for just one second. Please. That city has bastardized their police force and attacked their police force for so long and said that they are all racist, horrible people, and that everything that's wrong with the city is basically because of the NYPD. I'm paraphrasing, but. I mean, the whole defund the police movement, the blaming the police for every interaction that they have that goes south because of subject action. So first and foremost, everything that happened on that subway, I'm going to put right on the shoulders of the politicians that created the situation where one criminals are being let out of um, let out after being arrested over and over the revolving door. We've all heard it. 
you said something, I think it was 40 something arrests. And by the way, one of those was abducting or attempt attempt of a, attempting to abduct a seven year old girl, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And his is last one is that he had an assault charge that was pending and he had a, a, like an active warrant for, for an assault. So, I mean, violence is in the it's definitely yeah. in the mix. So then just when I hear this, because obviously I uh, after this, I'll be on another radio show talking about different active shooter or violence incidents. People are like, well, what do you think? Like, well, we have a lifelong career criminal. Yeah, maybe he knew how to moonwalk. Awesome. And then we have somebody who was not a lifelong criminal who did not wake up wanting to get into a violent altercation with somebody. I'm saying that innocent until proven guilty. But right now, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt until I hear other information towards the non-lifelong criminal who didn't wake up that day wanting to kill somebody. What do you it's think about that? No, I agree with you 100% on that, too. I didn't think we'd have much of a different take. What is interesting is, is that he held the guy supposedly for 15 minutes, which is tells me 24 years old, some experience with uh, some combatives. I'm sure they teach basic combatives. I mean, you and I have probably I, I'm guessing you've choked people out. I've choked people out. I've done it to guys who were in the army that thought they were tough at airborne school because they were your size and they thought they were going to attack a little guy like me. It turns out I'm actually kind of heavy for my size. So and, and I have more skill. You can't lower your head and hit me in the waist. It's not going to work well. So I've I've, uh, you know, guillotined guys out. But at some point, you got to also know the difference between letting it sink in, letting him lose consciousness, which is not fatal by any means. You could do a blood choke or an air choke where he really did damage, it sounds like. Uh, 15 minutes. What do you think? What do you attribute that to? Uh, I mean, I, I've only seen a couple minutes of the video, but the generally speaking, I would say that the, the reasonableness, one, he is not a law enforcement officer. Therefore, he should not be judged in the same light of the training and experience for civilian law enforcement. That is a different standard because they're given different tools, different authority, and different training, specifically in combatives on uh, de-escalation and less lethal force and all that other stuff. Sure. So I'm not going to apply the same standard uh, to this citizen, and maybe he he is a Marine or he was a Marine. Sounds like yeah. Effect. Sounds like uh, no longer working for the Marine Corps at this point. But uh, okay. either way, but right. Prior service and great, but prior service, the only training that I'll take into account in his prior service would be uh, his ability to see a threat and respond accordingly for the self-preservation of himself. So I'm like, okay, he clearly thought that this guy was a threat, reasonable fear. He had reasonable fear of great bodily harm, or at least at least bodily harm uh, for himself or others, which is from what we've seen in the video makes sense. And eyewitness video is already saying that or eyewitness testimony is saying the same exact thing. Yes. The 15 minutes, I could chalk it up to a million different things, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because he was the suspect was still fighting with him on the ground. You could see there was still a complete unwillingness to change the behavior, the COB, of the, um, the suspect. So, again, lifelong criminal, tried to abduct kids, assaulted people versus a veteran who woke up and was likely coming or going from a job uh and did not try to start the interaction or, or he's not even from there and, and that may be the case too and he's just a guy who's yep. on you know who's just a subway passenger as a tourist which i've i've been that although i'm not really a tourist i guess but um i've, I've always his, thought that i might choose somebody in a new york subway if i was there because it's bad it's it's horrible i mean the the number of times that we were on the subway i'm like we need to stop taking the subway because I don't want to get an off-duty shooting here. And there are so many idiots that are trying to provoke an assault 
or trying to invoke, uh, I mean, the, the video is coming out, people being pushed into, uh, onto the tracks by these psychopaths yep. in New York. The assaults down there are ridiculous. So everybody knows it, everybody in New York. And by the way, this is not new for New York. If you remember, there's a huge landmark case, I believe in back in the 70s, where the subways were so dangerous that people just got, they wouldn't go down there. One guy, uh, he was getting robbed by a couple of kids and he pulled out a gun and shot two or three of the kids. I forgot the case, but long story short, there's headlines of he was a hero at the time because everybody was so sick and tired of being attacked, abused, and robbed on the uh, on the transit system in New York back in the 60s or 70s. And, and it and led I'll, to people that were so-called trained in martial arts. This was the Red Beret sort of thing, the Red Jackets. This is Curtis Sleewell's operation. I have a weird connection uh, through my in-laws to him. But uh, end of the day, he he recruited a bunch of guys to basically ride the subways. I think they were called Guardian Angels. And people can check me in the yeah. comment section. But they rolled around and they were marked as such. And they just basically said, look, if law enforcement's not going to be down here, we are. And uh, hey, man, I don't know karate, but I know crazy and I'm going to take you down. And that was kind of the move, right? And so yeah. there's, there's a lot of history. And it's not even vigilanteism. It's essentially like filling a gap between the expectation of law enforcement's ability to, to solve the problem and your just general responsibility as another citizen. Look, you're a man. You're responsible for women around you. That's the way I was raised. I know you feel the same way about, you know, 100%. that's why you get into a guardian protector type role, whether it's law enforcement or, or military or otherwise. But yeah, it's, it's crazy to think that. I want to um, pivot to, you know, that we could sit there and talk about that. But I think end of the day, also maybe talk real quickly about the sympathetic response and, and the ability to judge time when you're in the middle of a fight like that. Yeah. Anybody who's actually been in a real fight, uh, even training, if you've been a uh, boxer, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, MMA, anything, or been in combat or self-defense, or even got to the point where you, you thought you had to go weapons hot, the time distortion is ridiculous. I don't know if, when, how many times you've experienced it, but I'm guessing you've experienced it. We had some chats we'll keep out of this from a shot show, which stuff gets spicy yep. and in that time, that hyper-focus comes in, and if you put a gun to my head and you're like, tell me exactly how much time passed, I could not tell you exactly how much time passed because I, I don't know. That was not how the brain processes that information. Once that amygdala fires, the prefrontal cortex is disengaged. So from a physiological standpoint, it's reasonable to say that he lost track of time, which because he's in fight or flight in that survival mode. It's it's always been my argument for the three cops. We just saw a manslaughter conviction for the guys that were at the Derek Chauvin situation. And it's like, look, you're acting like he was sitting there paying attention to what this dude was doing, and he may not have known at all. And have, having worked CPR, you know, been on, on scenes and done codes, if you'd said, how long were you on scene? The only reason I know is because we rotate for CPR compressions, and I've got a timer running on the pads that tells me how long I've been working the code. If you ask me in any reasonable setting, I have no idea. It could have been 15 minutes. It could have been 45. It could have been three minutes. And sometimes that's the case. You've been there for three minutes, and you're like, it's been an hour. I'm exhausted. And then you look up, and you're like, it's been three minutes and 12 seconds. Like, how, what is going on here? So. Yeah, and I, I've had to activate on a flight on multiple flights before back in my day, and we won't go into the details, but some of them were hands on and more physical <laughs> in a sense. And the to this day, I the only timestamps I'll have is the flight deck uh, recorder where I'm calling up to the captain after we've subdued everything. And 
we know that roughly when it started and roughly when it ended from that timestamp. But in the moment, I had no idea how long that was going because that was not my focus. My focus was on preservation of life of those around me. Sure. I, I just want people to have that awareness as they are potential jurors in these cases, as they are looking in and, and, and getting law enforcement reactions that don't have the time to share all this long form information. You know, these are experiences you can't fake and you can't you can't really accurately put yourself and be a peer of this person unless you've gone through something that is fairly aggressive and and is a very strong sympathetic response. Um, I want to just kind of pivot. There's only, you know, we could probably talk about this for hours if you and I wanted to, and it'd be fun too. Um, This shooting happened in Texas. I want to kind of talk about that. That is your world, uh, public safety, public safety training, you know, getting people aware of this could happen at a church. It could happen else. People are always acting like, oh, I'm scared. I can't go to a school. I can't go to a mall. I can't go to church without having this stuff happen. Statistically, still pretty rare. Maybe, maybe some of the things that people should be doing um, in those specific environments that are unique to a mall environment or unique to a church that they can do that's smart. Yeah. So, uh, in those first, as soon as you get there, best thing you can do, establish baseline. If you've been there before, check your previous knowledge of the location see what does anything look off. Are there cars parked in a location that cars aren't generally parked in? Is the flow of traffic coming and going similarly? Are the people in the stores is there even a quiet focus where people's heads are pointed in a direction? That's an early indicator that there's something further away that's outside of your sensory field that you cannot pick up on, which that those couple seconds, it's a matter of it can be the matter of life and death. So find those indicators. Um, and it, again, it's not that bond flick of like walking around with your hands up all day. Just look around, say, okay, this is pretty normal. Everything's normal. I'm going to check again in a little bit. And anytime I see an indicator that's outside of that green, what we call green, just everything's you're going down the road, you've got green lights in front of you, keep yep. going. As soon as you start spotting that yellow behavior or that deviation from baseline, that's the yellow light at the traffic, you start making decisions. Do I speed up? Do I slow down? Do I turn left? Do I turn right? Start thinking of it in that light. Red is really easy. Once you start hearing gunshots, make a decision, be decisive, don't hesitate. Um, What do you think about making that decision beforehand? Like as you walk in plans with, especially with kids and family and wives that don't necessarily react to being yelled at like mine. Uh, Whenever I yell at her to do something, it's just like, it's freeze instead of, they don't fight or flight. A lot of people freeze in my experience. So then part of it, especially if you're responsible for the protection of others, and I say responsible in the sense of if you're a parent, you're absolutely responsible for the protection of others. If you're an aunt, an uncle, or even an older child with your parents who are becoming more elderly, or you're just a good human being in a public place, start start looking at it from if you're in the uh, responsible for the protection of others, and then when it's in the span of your control within the family unit. One of the things I do with my wife, because again, she comes from musical theater, slightly different than our background. Not a hands-on um, occupation in the same way. Yeah. I'm like, hey, just out of curiosity, um, at if something happens here, what would you do? And she looks around and she's like, oh, I'd probably go over here. Or I'd go over there. I'm like, okay, good. And it's not a stressful conversation and it doesn't have to happen every day, but every couple of weeks we'll have a chat about that. Uh, and the more chats you have, the more natural it becomes where that reaction, you're you're building the neural pathways ultimately so that you don't go into that classic code black where you have nothing to pull from. If you build a neural pathway of, okay, if something happens, I can go there or I can go there. 
okay, I have two choices. And then if something happens, reevaluate and say, oh, well, that one's much better than what I previously thought. But at least you've already mentally put that through. We always say the body can't go where the mind hasn't been. If you haven't put your mind there, you'll never be able to respond. That's a really, really good one to remember. And it also has kind of a nice catchiness to it. I feel like you should meme it and you should put it out there and I will retweet that because I dig it. Um, it's it's so interesting. You said looking for uh, aberrant behaviors that are just slightly out of the norm. When we looked at the video of that uh, that shooter in Texas, he parked at a stop sign and got out. Obviously, his dress code would have let you know, but people don't get out of you know, when they're blocking in other cars in a mall parking lot. So that's tip number one. It may only be two seconds worth of, uh, of a warning, but it's enough for you to know like something is wrong and that primes you to be able to go to that next step of maybe taking the next step of safety. Correct. And a lot of our SWAT team training that we do is talks about we work on hundredths and tenths of a second on improving whether it's room clearing or weapons manipulation um, or the split time shot between shots. And I'm um, we train it not in the sense of, hey, you need to be a competition shooter because a tenth of a second, you'll be a winner. No, it's opportunities of violence. Watching the video in Texas, think of time as opportunities of violence directed at you or somebody who doesn't deserve it. Down in Texas, uh, listening to the splits, they were roughly 0 0.3, 0 0.25. So about three to four rounds per second can be fired on an average semi-auto handgun or shotgun or rifle, mm -hmm. which is pretty standard. So every time you, you talked about two seconds, you see somebody park at a stop sign in a parking lot and get out of a car. If that gave you two seconds, that's eight rounds of opportunity of violence that you took away from them and gave to yourself in the sense of personal protection mitigation, where you're able to get away from those eight rounds because you gave yourself two seconds. Right. No, and, and I'm a competent shooter can probably take a shot at 25 yards in under that amount of time. So now you've opened up an opportunity and probably the distance if you go get the training. So let's talk about where people can come see you for training or other places that you recommend if you want to kind of throw that out there. I'd like you to, you know, uh, throw out the websites and handles and all the things because I think uh, it is really important stuff for people today. Yeah, so our training is arch or our company's archwaydefense.com. That's archway defense, like archway to your home, defense, like department of defense, archwaydefense.com, handle Twitter, uh, archway defense. We are back after being banned about five years for calling out the media for officer involved shooting where they lied about. So we're really excited to be back on Twitter. Um, archway defense for Instagram, all of the social medias are the same thing, archway defense. Now, if you're getting training, uh, go to our Instagram page. And there's, if you're looking for a permits carry, we worked with a, we partnered with a national firm that will do uh, permits carry phenomenal. Click the link, put in your zip code. Uh, you'll find a place to get your permits carry. That's a perfect start. Even if you don't plan on carrying a firearm for self-defense, it's a great course to go through to understand the legal aspects of what you can and cannot do. I think that's one of the most important pieces before you go out and buy the new gun or the new holster or new anything like go figure out the law and then back yourself into it with the uh the permits and the guns and all the other cool gear very very good advice too you guys operate in the uh the areas outside of the twin cities are there other places that you're traveling nationally to teach people yeah i mean most of uh april we were in uh we were doing courses in texas and in minnesota and as i say we travel coast to coast border to border um, for our training. So we're all over, I'll be heading down to Chicago in a week 
And then coming back up to the Twin Cities, we have an entire uh, city government, all sworn, unsworn city workers that we're training in situational awareness in our VR product through uh, our tech company. I really do like that. If you come back down to Texas, you got to let me know. I'll come see you guys. Even though it's a big state, uh, I'll make a, I'll make a special trip to come hang out. That'd be fun. We'll all make right. it work. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today, folks. I want to uh, throw a uh, thank you to our sponsor as well. We have Patriot Coolers. You've been probably seeing me drinking out of it. This is my uh, generation one. I've been using this for quite a while at this point. That's a, a dead air sticker because I own some of their suppressors. This is a, uh, a unit patch from one of my buddies who's uh, Air Force Special Operations, worked out of Fort Bragg or Pope Air Force Base before it became Pope Army Airfield, I think. Um, one of the great products, it's a great company. They obviously give back money to the uh, veterans and they help disabled vets by getting their house set up. And then moreover, they sponsor the Kyle Serafin Show. So you can use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. You'll get 10% off if you want to buy any of their tumblers, if you want to buy a soft or a hard-sided cooler. Excellent products at patriotcoolers.com. It's a Texas America company. Uh, I got some family connections down there too, but they're good people. Check them out. Promo code Kyle, K Y L E. And you have been listening to the Kyle Seraphin show. I'm very grateful that Peter joined me as our guest. And uh, folks, if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe. You can do the thing on uh, Rumble where you can leave us a comment. I'm happy to respond to those. Today won't have the live chat, but we will be back live on Wednesday. And you can always take us with you anywhere on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeartRadio. If there's a place that we are not doing it, you can say, uh, Alexa, play Kyle Serafin Show podcast, and you will get your spyware that's always listening to you to play the Kyle Serafin Show for you as well. Um, many of you have left us five-star reviews. We're well over 400. I've got producer Phil, so I'm going to have him read one if he's got one pulled up, a, uh, a five-star review from the Apple Podcast app. Yeah, we've got one here from TP Kansu entitled Department of Complaints. They write, scary podcast. Who's to say they aren't tagging anyone they don't like, regardless if they did not travel to D.C.? Also, I guess I fall into the suspendables category as I early retired on 11... 2021 b-day refusing to drink the kool-aid and to violate staff's medical privacy due to the mandate required of me to verify vaccine information on each staff my ethics and personal integrity were challenged thanks to tp for that five-star review if you'd like to hear your five-star review right on the kyle seraphit show give us one and uh, maybe you'll hear yours next that's it that's correct Folks, uh, TP, thanks for being a suspendable. All the listeners, you guys have been uh, been fantastic, and the live chats have been really good. Like I said, I will see you again live on Rumble on Wednesday, and if you want, you can catch me on TimCast this Monday night. I will be on TimCast IRL. I have no idea what I'm getting into, but I'm about to fly to Dulles, so I'll probably see some fans on the way. So uh, we'll see you guys very soon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin. 